We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories, their nuanced conversations, and forward thinking, and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing, but not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Fade to Gray. We've got Seth, Omar, Elizabeth, and of course, I'm Chris. And today we've got Darren Calhoun, who is a speaker, musician, photographer, writer, activist, conversation starter, community activist, worship leader based out of Chicago. He spends most of his time working on issues in the LGBTQ community. Uh, He also works on inclusion and racial equity. Um, He comes at it all through the lens of a God who loves us. Uh, So (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to him. Let's uh, let's give it up for Darren Calhoun. Hey. Sounds like you don't do much with your life, Darren. Tell me about it. You know, I I spend so much time twiddling my thumbs that I just don't know what to do with myself. It sounds right. (laughs) (laughs) Out of that entire impressive list, the one that caught my ear the most, I have to admit, was the uh, professional conversation starter. I mean, that's... uh, um, when I was in high school, we used to call ourselves like the cool conversation killers, you know, and so just say something awkward to kind of like people are like, oh, respond. <laughs> so then I started podcasting. So um, very honorable. I do like uh, the personalities that are able to, I guess, very outgoing, not afraid of people if, um, you know, to be able to, to come in and start conversations. Um, I'm going to start the conversation with a question about that as far as how do you get your diploma as a conversation starter? <laughs> Well, what you do is you go to Facebook University and you do a very accelerated program of getting blocked by Facebook at least three times for 30 days. Oof. And once you've once you've achieved that level of engagement from the Zuck, then you have arrived <laughs> at Conversation Starter because what they're not going to do is let you have a conversation that's real and authentic, especially about race wow. um, and not get blocked. Yeah. <laughs> So would that be a conversation starter or should I induct you into my crew I had in high school as a conversation killers? Because it seems like you're always getting that, that conversation block. Oh, it's still, it keeps going. Cause then, they, then people like call you and they want to have a conversation on the phone or anything like that. Um, I say that anyway, right. I say that tongue in cheek, but it literally is, um, something that I've been doing for quite a long time where, I show up in spaces that aren't explicitly one side or the other. And because of that, people have a lot to say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I when you live in that kind of tension, it creates lots of discussions about lots of things, especially around race, gender and sexuality. Certainly. OK, well, being that you live in a space that's not one side or the other, let's unpack that a little bit. What what does that mean? Sure. Um, like, uh, is that? The community you live in, you being black, um, or you, do you live in a predominantly white community then, or is that um, like workspace, or are you, are you talking something beyond racial barriers? It's been a hybrid of all kinds of things. Um, when I was growing up, um, 
I like one of the first major decisions I was able to make was to choose where I would go to high school. And um, in Chicago, things are very, very, very de facto segregated. And mm-hmm. I wanted a high school that was, um, at least through the lens I had at the time, that was diverse. And so I picked a school that was an even split of black, Latino and uh, and white and its students. Um, and that's just kind of like the, the the preview of how many times I would choose to be in spaces that aren't dominated by one particular thing. Um, but when I got into uh, when I got into college, uh, same kind of thing, a, kind of a diverse place. But more specifically, I had the opportunity to um, to start. Uh, seeing what happens when faith intersects with sexuality. Um, and so I I both came out, I was one of the first people to come out as gay on campus, and I had the experience of no longer identifying as gay. And so I had people cheering me on and vilifying me from both ends of the ideological perspective mm. when it comes to sexuality. Um, and I wasn't necessarily advocating for either but um it was just it was the beginning of me seeing hey if i live in a way that's authentic it's not always going to uh it's not always going to be to everyone's liking in so many words my question is what do you mean when you say that you came out and then you didn't like i don't understand that was and did you you said that happened in college or high school wait i got confused in college yeah it was the short version okay so is this college a faith-based college? And then why did you come out and then go back into the closet? Yeah, now we're getting into the juicy stuff. Uh, <laughs> so when I came when I came out, um, it was my freshman year of college. My uh, roommate at the time was trying to blackmail me because he found evidence that um, I was gay via something, aka porn, that was on my computer. And... Um, it was certainly questionable what his sexual orientation was, um, but he and two of the guys from the football team were were just trying to have power over me. And I was very, I was very clear. It was like, no, I don't know if I came out like you, you couldn't expose me to anyone who really matters. So if I came out then it's just going to be what it is. And so uh, this is also about for, for time frame. This was about the same time that Ellen DeGeneres had come out mm-hmm. and there were still lots of questions of if she would have a career, a show, all that stuff. Right. Um, but I was I was very clear. You were not going to hold this over my head and, and have power over me. So I came out that freshman year. And like I said, I was the only person who was known to be gay on campus and the first person to definitely be explicitly out as gay on my campus. Um, it was a Catholic University, but it's very liberal in nature. So there were religious classes, but it wasn't the kind of place where I had to sign some kind of um, purity contract or obedience to certain things. Um, we, you know, we had parties and, and all the all the normal trappings of of a college uh, life experience. Except for we didn't have um, we didn't have frats or sororities. But um, but yeah, I was out. And it was a big deal because I was somebody who, who I, I was on Black Student Union and I, I was active in, in leading various student organizations. So people knew me um, on campus before that, but now there was this big deal of, oh, he's out. What does that mean? But well, then, let me park there for just a second yeah, if you don't mind. So you're telling me that your roommate, whose sexuality was questionable, was trying to hold you hostage almost uh and use 
porn or whatever that might have been on your computer against you for what purpose? How was he blackmailing you? Well, the the the, the thing was, it was, uh, and this still exists today. Being gay was 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 not socially acceptable. It you know certainly back then. You're talking about the '90s. Yeah, it, it was um, a little late bit '90s. Yeah, it's not it's not as you know acceptable certainly as it is today, and certainly still not as it should be. But but w- so what was he going to do with that? It, it, the 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 full power was I'm going to tell people you're gay. Yeah, it was you know, and and it, it, you know, 20 years later, it's certainly a different different uh, world that we live in. Yeah, but it's still a it's still a thing that really does change the way people behave. Um, if you just look at at some of our um, political leaders, they vote anti-gay on things all the time, sure. and then get caught in a same-sex situation. Oh, yeah. whatever it is, absolutely. And so, was he like blackmailing you for money? No, it was it was uh, just like a power. Things, yeah, power. Things would come up missing from my room. Um, clothes came up missing, and he would kind of like he tried to take over the room, if you will. Yeah, and it was going to be all about him and what he wanted and and what his friends wanted. Um, if that meant they were removing my belongings, then that was supposed to be okay, and I was not okay with that. No, of course not. And so. Would you have come out had it not been for that situation? Um, at the time, it kind of it was it would have been a maybe. It depends. There yeah. wouldn't have been a direct pressure at the time. There's nothing going on. Um, if I'd been dating someone in that moment, maybe I I considered it. But I'd actually broken up with somebody who who I'd uh, considered coming out for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, otherwise there was there would have been no direct reason in that context for me to come out. That makes me kind of sad that you didn't get to do that on your own terms, really. I mean, you you were almost forced into it, it seems. And that's, uh, you know, that's not something that anyone should ever be forced to do. So, man, I apologize that you had to experience that. Um, But it it doesn't seem like you take that, you know, as a victim. It seems like you you empowered yourself to say, you know what, I'm not going to be treated that way. I'm going to, you know, go ahead and just let everyone know. So, so go ahead and continue. I apologize. I, I wanted to know a little bit more about the dynamic of that. No, I yeah. appreciate that, and and I always have long stories. So interrupt anytime. Sure. Um, the the thing to re- to as you kind of pulled on is that I was reclaiming power. Um, I I knew that what they had was that as a secret, and that. The, the secret really didn't have effect in my life. So it was like, if this is, if this is what you're going to try to do, then yes, I'm taking it back because yeah. you're not, you have no power here. That's right. Yeah. Wow. I, I am interested to know. I know it doesn't really matter much in the long run, but uh, is this person uh, out and about today? Um, they exist in the world. Uh, I have no contact with them at all Good for at you. this point. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not a thing. <laughs> Good. Yeah. So you came out. How did you go back into the closet? Like, what did what does that process look like? Yeah. So a fun, a funny thing happened a few months later. Um, as I was out and proud, and I, I wrote this poem. Um, I'm black. I'm Christian. I'm gay. Get used to it. Um, that was kind of my my vehicle for for introducing people to to my outness. Um, or there's a, there's another term for it as well, uh, inviting people in. Um, 
you know, when we when we challenge the construct of the closet and the need to to be hiding anything, instead in inviting people into your own story, um, that's what I was doing. I was inviting people in via this poem, but I was inviting everybody. I told everybody walking professionally, school, you name it, because um, it was like now I can just be here. I don't know what here is, but now I can be here. I'm you know 17 going on 18, um, and and newly out. And I ended up meeting a guy on campus who um, also professed to be a Christian, but he was very different. Um, and to make a long story short, we started a Bible study together where he had asked me, what does God want for my sexuality? And it was a, it was a genuine question. Um, and that that led to us meeting regularly, that met, led to us having established a Bible study on campus. And one day um, I had this uh, charismatic kind of born again experience where I felt I was being ejected from something. And in in this experience, I felt like all I wanted was to be identified as, as Christian. I just wanted to belong to Jesus. I didn't want to have a sexuality. I didn't want to have anything else, just me and Jesus. And so I stopped identifying as gay in that moment. And this was aligning with the kind of the values that were coming out of this Bible study that were coming out of the church. It was attached to or eventually would be attached to. Um, and so I, that, that day, that night, October 28th, 1998, I think it would have been, um, I like got rid of all my stuff. I took all my, my rainbow flags down and I, um, I, I purged my room and my belongings of anything that, that had to do with being gay. Um, I told my friends who were gay that I was not gay anymore. Like I, 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 as I was signed up. And because I was so public on campus, it was a big conversation starter. Certainly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So was this a, I'm not gay, I'm just going after Jesus sort of thing? Or was this, I'm not gay and now I'm um, you know, on the open market to date women sort of thing? Yeah, that's, like a, how, that's how, a good distinction. How hard did you, yeah. Um, for me, it was, I'm just not, I'm not gay. I just love Jesus. Um, I didn't experience or develop attraction toward women in that moment. Um, and it would be, it would be about a, a less than maybe a year or so before um, it got into the, to the more formal um, interactions with my pastor when it came to what does it mean for me to not be gay anymore? Um, and I don't know if we want to go there yet, but but yeah, there's a there's a, an important difference because many people say, well, once you stop having sex with men or being or identifying as gay, then you aren't gay anymore. And that's really a, a kind of a heterosexist per lens on what sexuality is when um, and churches to this day will still say that to people. Um, but the reality is most um most people who are same-sex attracted or gay don't go on to have an attraction for the opposite gender that excludes an attraction to the same gender. Right. Um, so whatever you qualify as deliverance or change typically isn't what most heterosexual people are imagining that change is. So help me understand your church dynamic then, because I think that that probably has a lot to do with what's going to end up happening, you know, with your conversion therapy, which, you know, we're, we're going to get into very, very soon. But what's the church like? Because what I'm thinking of, and, and, you know, this is very stereotypical of me to think of this, but what I'm thinking is, is, you know, coming from a, a black family, you probably, uh, in that culture, of course, uh, there, there's, 
I think it's probably harder for a black man to come out as gay than it would be for a white man. Uh, because from my understanding of the culture, that's very looked down on. Um, is that something that's uh, also true of like whatever church you were uh, involved in? Yeah, you, you pull off some really good, good uh, nuances here. So there is this thing where um, being gay and being black means you have kind of a double minority status. And so while you're already fighting one form of oppression and, and visibility and so forth in society as black, you then take on another level that can even alienate you from your black inner circle. Um, for me, I didn't necessarily have that challenge. My my church growing up was Catholic. And um, as a black Catholic, the most we ever talked about was like gossip. That was like the, the one thing we were just kind of a, a working class church, neighborhood based church. Um, and we referenced a lot to civil rights justice, but we didn't really get into to a bunch of this is a sin. That's not a sin kind of things. So this new church that I was starting to, to become a part of in college, this was a non-denominational charismatic church. Mm-hmm. And so the, the culture and the, and everything Everything was very different. Um, black, ch- black, black Catholics do tend to be somewhat charismatic, but my church was we were we were just kind of whitewashed in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. And so now I'm in this new church environment that's very expressive, that's very, uh, very passionate, very evangelical in some ways of its of its ideas about what needs to happen. Um, and it, uh, it was just, it was a, it was a whole new experience on top of me being, you know, a young man coming into my own in my college years, uh, and with these very strong demands about what was right and what was wrong and, and how you needed to live your life to be pleasing to God. Sure. And during that time period too, I'm sorry, Seth, um, but sure. During that time period, um, you're talking about being in a charismatic church that, um, that's when the whole uh, holiness or not holiness, but the purity movement was a mm-hmm. big thing too. So oh, yeah. it, it sounds like, you know, you're just diving right in from one experience in the black Catholic church to now you have uh, all these emotions that you're able to embrace while in church, but how everyone has their different experience with the purity movement. And uh, I mean, obviously the, uh, what's the word we call it conversion therapy but the reparative thank you seth the reparative therapy um that you experienced um was it based purely out of that purity movement that was going on there in the 90s and early 2000s yeah the and and i know seth has something to add to this too but um the the distinction um of being in a black environment uh both my Catholic Church were black and my um, non-denominational church were black was black uh, the distinction is that most of what was happening in, in mainstream evangelicalism and, and mainstream like church stuff that was completely out of our purview like okay. purity movement wasn't a thing I heard the name I kissed dating goodbye and yeah, all Harris. I knew of it was a was a title but and we had a lot of those kind of values in us and in our culture but it wasn't it wasn't it didn't have the same authority that it did if you were in in a white church or evangelical church um and i i 
you know, we'll, we'll get into this later, but I hadn't heard of Exodus International. No one in my church was listening to anybody who was in that entire circuit, even though all of the same kinds of things were happening. Um, and so that's one of the things that when we talk about this today, that I do make the distinction that even though I wasn't in a formal program, we didn't even believe in um, having uh having therapists and so forth and you know there's so many reasons why because of how as black people we were excluded from um, institutions of higher learning we're excluded from a lot of the ways that white churches have credentialed their people we have this whole different system where it's relational based and where it's like who you know and who you've been in relationship and and who who what community you've been a part of that's how you get the authority which means that it also doesn't have the same um, change speed when it comes to, oh, well, David Gushy came out in support of same-sex marriage, so now everybody, let's rethink. Like, we don't, we weren't thinking about a David Gushy. We weren't thinking about, you know, any of these kinds of top academic scholars and leaders and church leaders. We were talking about, well, what, what did Bishop such and such say? Well, we just believe the Bible is right. You know, it's a very different kind of uh, interaction there. I wanted to camp out just a little bit on the intersectionality between race and faith, um, but also your double minority status in, in that. Um, and for me personally, and, and again, I'm a white, I'm, I'm, you know what I'm saying? I'm white. I have inherent privilege. I struggle so much around issues of shame and guilt, and it's, it's riddled a, a large portion of my my life and and something I, I continue to kind of fight and battle. Um, but from your perspective, right? Because we have this, now we have this intersectionality because of being the not minority staff. I mean, the not, my, I cannot talk. Or, see, I mess up right. conversations around race. Um, I don't know the right words all the time. Um, but when you're not the majority, right? When you're not white, yeah. looking at, how that may compound the shame that might come along with this. So can you talk a little bit around the shame and, and guilt and if that was something that propelled the the chain, the want to go through some type of change of effort? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question. Um for me, when I was out, the thing that I was discontented with was I went from being people's nice friend, Darren, to people's gay friend, Darren. Yep. I literally had friends who introduced me to their parents as, hey, mom, this is my gay friend. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how how does that the first thing they know about me before they know my name? <laughs> why is why is that OK? Um, and so there was there was a tension there um, that made me, again, just kind of discontent with, OK, well, I'm out and I'm here. But now this is this is taking over who people know me to be. Um, mm -hmm. And when it comes to blackness, uh, and this is one of the things that's different um, for many people, blackness, blackness is something people typically know about you before they know your name. So that didn't, it doesn't feel as weird. I mean, granted, if you introduce me as your black friend, we're still going to have an issue. <laughs> Just you're his only friend. <laughs> but it's it's a it's a lot more natural, if you will, in the conversation than this is my gay friend. Um, and so, when it comes to the things that we feel shame about, um, it's 
I don't know. There's there's a, there's also this undercurrent of certain things being attributed to whiteness. Um, having proper speech is a tr- often attributed to whiteness, even though that's not true. Um, having uh, yeah. being being any kind of alternative or, or not conforming to like whatever the societal standards gets attributed to whiteness. So being gay in 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 some spaces it was very common to hear oh that's that white people ash you know s-h-i-t <laughs> you know it's that it's it's attributed to this kind of oh that's some stuff white people do we don't do that we being black people we being you know respectable people we don't do that stuff that's them doing their wild stuff um and so there is this part where you have to kind of overcome that uh, stigma, if you will, even before you get into all kinds of other things like gender performance. Um, I think that's a, and I'll, you know, I'll let you get back to questions, but gender performance, especially for black men, has been so racialized because not only were we portrayed as the dominant aggressive mandingo who's threatening the safety of white and purity of white women, we also simultaneously were portrayed as lazy good for nothings that were passive and, and and sappy and needed authority and needed to be uh, whipped into being useful. And so those two dynamics are what to this day we still grow up with. And so you get the thug image, you get the the we're hardcore, we're gonna, we're gonna beat you up, or you know, you gotta lock your doors when you come into our neighborhoods, but you also get the the projection that we're we're deadbeat dads and we don't take care of our kids and we, you know, we're shiftless and don't have jobs. And you're as a black man being raised in a society, you're constantly being told you have to outperform three times harder than what they do, white people do. You have to be more masculine. Your voice has to be deeper. You have to be aggressive, but also completely harmless, like all these tensions. And so to throw gay in that mix is like, well, does that mean? Does that mean you're going to be a feminine person? It was just a question I actually got. Does that mean you're going to that you really want to be a woman? All these things that at you know 17 years old you're trying to balance out as you just figure out for me i was still trying to figure out how to walk and not look gay <laughs> really enjoying this conversation darren and um i know we don't have but a little bit more than an hour to talk with you about this and really want to get into this so i think the next logical question to step is um how did you get teamed up then with exodus how did you hear about that and was your at this point you're already in your story you've came out or back into the closet however (laughs) however that's said now that you're no longer gay you're only gay for jesus um (laughs) jesus is into butt stuff so um (laughs) so you have to no, no sexuality whatsoever um was that did you feel like Exodus was the next logical step because there was something missing. You felt like if you did th- this actual uh, reparative experience that you're going to then fully become not gay or why did you like, it seems like you had already made the commitment within yourself. Why then did you need to immerse yourself in uh, torture <laughs> in an abusive yeah. situation? We, we do refer to some of my time as the concentration camp. I'm going to bullet point a lot of stuff because there's this could be an, an entire one hour monologue if I didn't. So here's what happened. I came out, right? Got born again. So I'm back in the closet. I'm also getting deeply involved with the church that my friend was attached to. Um, 
within about eight months, the, the campus ministry was established and recognized by the, the school and by the church. We're like having regular Bible studies and growing. All this great pressure is going on. And the church decided that me and my friend would be ordained. And so now, like, there's an even greater pressure as, a, as an 18-year-old about to be ordained in a system that had no formal training whatsoever. And word of my testimony gets to the ears of my pastor at the time. He, very short, says, he pulls me out of, I was teaching vacation Bible school. He pulls me out and says, I heard you used to be gay. You should never talk about that again. You should be ashamed it ever happened. And you should forget that it was ever part of your life. And his reasoning was, if people knew that about you, they would never receive you as a man of God. Wow. And yeah, that was that was that was the that was the charge that was put on me as a as a young 18 year old bright eyed and bushy tailed about to be ordained minister. And that actually that, really surprises me because I'm, I'm thinking surprises you what better. Yeah, because I'm thinking the, what better what testimony, testimony should be right. Right. What better yeah. testimony of a God that changes to be. Oh, I used to be gay, but guess what? I'm not anymore. Like that to me would be, yeah. you know the biggest uh, testimony you could give i suppose i mean i'm not a christian but that that's what i'm thinking so yeah that really surprises me it's a dichotomy because on one level gays a choice we have to be able to justify that but then there's also the argument that it's not a choice and so they have to play the mind game between the two yeah it, and that was like it is your it. first introduction to the fact that like church is more about politics than it is about people because and it was fear. a political move for for him, yeah. Because it's easy it's easier to control the narrative if you, the conversation about gay never comes up, then they'd never have to like go there. And so it's right. kind of like right. So it's it's the fear, it's the shame. Go ahead, Seth. I've experienced. I just thought about it. I experienced almost the same thing. My mentor told me when he figured out when there was word that was caught that I was gay, he pulled me in and said, Seth, you better never talk about this with anybody. You need to go get help now and you need to stop engaging immediately because once you get too far into this, you can't pull back. And uh, he was like, you need to get help now. I started doing weekly Bible. This isn't about me, but I just wanted to identify like that's interesting yes. because it's similar. Yeah, I, I had so many movies like uh, moments like this while watching the movie Boy Erased because it was like, here's a whole different context. And yet some of the same phrases were said to me. And so it does stir up some of those same kind of traumatic things that happened where, yes, you have this you have the shame, you have this introduction of shame, because remember, I came out so that you couldn't shame me. But now my pastor, who I'm trusting everything with, is telling me I should be ashamed. And that was the first time that that shame was a part of my narrative and a part of what my sexuality was, even though it was secretive. It wasn't shameful before. It was just, well, this is private or people don't know how to act. But now it was like, oh, this is bad. And that that led me into um, 
essentially comp sexual compulsive um, behaviors for a number of years while I got super busy and super sh shiny as Minister Darren and was out there doing the work of the Lord. Um, I also had a whole second identity and a second email account. And uh, uh, Seth, are you laughing because you identify with this this dichotomy? All of it. All of it. Keep Just keep going. Like I'm like, yes. When I was all in the, the church, we were... Uh, Grind, I mean, grinder, scruff, all that stuff. But like, I even remember we had a group when we were going, we were deeply in ministry, right? He was mm -hmm. the worship pastor. I was leading some of the youth ministry. And then we lived together. We're both gay, but we would drink and party like crazy. And it was, you know what I mean? But no one would ever know. No you one. You know, because we're so entrained into the church. So you end up living these two different lives. Right. Right. It's a it's yeah. it's a form of code switching. The the mm -hmm. way that we just kind of turn on and off certain things and, and blend into certain environments. It's it's part survival, but it's also part partly fueled by that shame and, and all the stuff. Um and yeah, I I did that. I I I felt guilty about it. I, I would kind of um fast and, and and pray and all these other things. Um, but it it progressively got worse because that's kind of what shame does, right? There's nothing you can ever do to purge yourself from from your badness. And that's how I got further and further involved with um the demands of the church because every time I did something bad, I felt like I had to be cleansed or get forgiven. Pay your pens. Right. Um, and so at, at one point, um, I ended up actually being held up at gunpoint um, while I was on a hookup. And um, by the I, hookup? Yes. Oh, I'll see these. These are uh, this is why I need to write a book. There's so many there's so many stories real quick yeah, on this hookup. Um, since we're talking about charismatic evangelical stuff on this hookup. Go to meet this guy. Didn't have any contact information for him. We go. Uh, I just use this party line. He directed me to where to pick him up on a corner. So I didn't even have an address for him. And, and as we drove around to find a dark, dark, secluded spot, um, he pulls out a gun and is like, give me your money. And I am doing full time student, full time minister. No money coming from either. No money in my pocket had changed did like had like a few quarters in the in the car that was it and so he's like we're going to the atm we go to the atm i have 120 dollars to my name with no idea where any more will come from he says give me 60. and i'm like that felt like grace <laughs> <laughs> but also i still have a gun in my side and i might die in my sin because you know everything's about dying in sin when, when you're in that shame place and so um, I'm sweating bullets, like giving, throwing out whatever prayers I can in my head. And as we're driving, he's having me drive around before he gets out of the car. He says to me, God doesn't want you here. And he begins to go on into this whole thing about how God has more for me and this isn't where I'm supposed to be while he's holding the gun to my side. And so if you've ever been in these places, you're like, okay, God, I know your voice and it's coming out of this man's mouth who's also still holding the gun to my side. What does this mean? And this, you know, to because evangelicals always have to end, thing on, end things on an up note. To get to where this leads me is that I learned in that moment that nothing could separate me from the love of God literally nothing even though my church told me that this is where you would die and this is where the devil's going to get you and blah 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 it was god was just like clearly i'm here i'm with you i got this 
And then I also um, that was the the thing that led me into further um, giving things up to the point where I moved into the church. I cut off friends and family, gave up my car, quit school, shut down my photography and graphic design business because I was willing to forsake everything, take up my cross and follow Jesus. I just didn't realize that um, while God would honor my faith in that, that wasn't exactly what God was looking for, just in that the same way that God was able to show up and, and be present for me in the midst of a robbery, it still didn't mean that God didn't want me to be gay. It just meant this is, you know, this situation, no, you're not about to die here. <laughs> so yeah, just dropped a few nuggets on you. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I just, man, I, I think about the fact that you got robbed by an evangelical <laughs> And, and he's, you know, he's telling you what God wants for you, but then he's also stealing sixty dollars from you. Good thing it was <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> it was, but it was graceful because he could have taken one twenty. Well, and then you had blue balls on top of it. <laughs> I mean, God damn! Wait, we didn't actually. He didn't clarify that part. Was <laughs> because honestly, I'm trying to think about it. I mean, I he, why wouldn't he wait until after the deed was done? At least you get two, you know, two for one. Because <laughs> he yeah, wasn't really no, gay. There was, uh, I think he was gay. My okay. pants were he down, but there was it. no sexual activity in that moment. <laughs> well, that is a blessing, right? You definitely like that right fucked. there, that I mean, we take away sure. from the situation. <laughs> we say, thank you, that's Jesus. That's very evangelical. That was the blessing. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> That was wow. the best ev evangelist I've heard in a while, man. Very oh, effective. He's like, <laughs> puts the fear of God in him like nobody else. Or it oh makes you gosh. empty your bowels. I don't know. Like, either one <laughs> right. happen in that moment. Well, I'm just glad that you're okay because you, know, like, you hear exactly. stories like uh, I listen to a lot of True Crime podcasts and stuff, and I think about like, yeah. Luca, like chopping people up. Oh, and stuff, yeah. Their body people, parts to people, different places. I'm like, always, to I'm this always, day, people have died. Yeah. I, lo I love Seth, and when he's talking about some of like, you know, the, the random hookups and, you know, we've been, I've been married for 11 years, so I don't like, uh, I, I don't, I'm just saying like, it's, it, it, it's a whole different lifestyle, like being gay and like, yeah. like meeting like these random We're not people, turning like, this into a, a hookup conversation. Cause it, <laughs> right, if you I'll, do, honestly, I think that needs to be its own podcast, like in a pod, like not a podcast episode, but a podcast, whole, like grinder hookups. And you talk about this shit because we really are nasty beings, <laughs> but it's always it's a bad thing. sign. Yeah, go ahead. It's not, it's, you know, you use the lifestyle word and while that uh -oh. is an experience of of some people who are gay especially men um it one it comes from the larger culture of shame in mm. countries like russia where there's still it's still illegal to identify as gay you still have the same levels of like cruising culture that you had in the 70s whereas here the more out we're able to be kids today are just like why why would i need to go to a gay bar like it, it things just don't even make sense to them anymore mm -hmm. and so yeah it, there's a lot to unpack about what what happens and why it happens in gay culture but yeah that's that Can is we quickly a talk whole about other that? thing go i'm, I'm so, here for it <laughs> i'm curious and 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 not 
curious isn't by curious, but I want to know. Nicely done. I want you talked a little bit earlier about you know your how your identity where where people would introduce you as your gay friend Darren, uh, and then of course you're talking about these people in Russia who they have a need for the community, whereas people here like I don't need to go to a gay bar and, and be part of a community. Why would I need to do that? Right. So. I've always been wondering about the whole LGBTQ community. Like, is there even a need for it today in the States? Like there might be in a place like Russia where it's not openly accepted, right? Like the more it becomes normal in society for people to, you know, uh, sleep with whoever they want to. You're saying everybody's um, a little bit gay, Chris? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, you know how I feel about it. I think, you know. I don't think Baby anyone's gay. straight, gay, bi, or whatever. People just fuck who they like to fuck. And, and <laughs> I think that that's perfectly acceptable. I agree, too. But 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 but, but anyhow, like, I, I guess my question is, is, you know, the identity. You don't want to be seen as the gay friend Darren. However, do you feel like you need to belong to the LGBTQ group? And what's that dynamic? There's there's so many levels, and this totally could be a whole other podcast. So you should have me back. Um, Love it. Yeah, here's yeah, here's the the top down view, if you will. Um, identity as a construct, the way we hold it, um, specifically in Western in Western societies today, is very different than how it's existed throughout history. Um, and so we get very caught up into whether identity is definition or if it's description. Right. I use identity as description. Um, and that means that I'm just describing a thing that's true about me. What's useful in me describing these things as true is that I find others who have similar experiences. And so when you're, when your description doesn't match the dominant group, whatever that is, whether it's heterosexual, cisgender, um, white, whatever in, you know, in the U S then you're able to find others who are like you and you feel less weird, you feel less gaslighted, you feel less of a lot of things. And so like earlier in the conversation when Seth was like, oh my gosh, the same thing was said to me. You don't think about how isolated you were until all of a sudden you find out you weren't the only one. Um, and that's part of what's what, why I've been so public with my story because while I was going through all this stuff, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was just this hellbound person who was gonna trip everybody up. And the more I've talked about it, the more I found that lots of people went through similar things, um, you know, some even getting married at the direction of their pastors, because married to a woman, guys getting married to a woman at the direction of their pastors, because there wasn't a conversation, there wasn't a larger thing. Um, I work with organizations like Q Christian Fellowship and the Reformation Project, but in my time, there was, there was no... There was no concept of a resource where LGBTQ Christian folks are actually having conversations with each other. Um, and again, every day we still we still meet people who are finding out you can actually identify as gay and Christian at the same time. Yes. But the because that's not the dominant conversation, it leaves people very, very isolated. So, yes, we do still need it. We still need all kinds of labels. That's why it's LGBTQ plus, because there's more and more ways that we're realizing that people are just not fitting in or not being included by whatever the dominant narrative is. You when we last left off with your story. Mm -hmm. um, and that there was this like this moment, right, where it was like, I'm all in for the change. I remember telling my parents 
send me wherever you have to send me. Mm-hmm. Spend whatever you have to spend. If you have to, throw me in a room, mm-hmm. lock the door, and walk away, and do not come back until I am fixed. Are you taking um, my that, testimony right now, or what? <laughs> that, I'm just saying that was my that I came to my parents like and mm-hmm. was bawling and crying and saying, yeah. "I don't care what you have to do. Yeah, send me there." Mm-hmm. Because our God is powerful, mm-hmm. and I believe that I'm called, and I think I'm supposed to be a pastor, and I have been taught to have complete trust in him. Mm-hmm. Tell me what to fucking do. And we cuss on this show. I hope you're okay with that. But like, I'm tell fine. me what the fuck <laughs> you want me to do, and whatever. And it sounds like that was a sentiment that you were expressing there right at the end, as we, and then we interrupted to kind of go over all this stuff. Yeah. But tell me about that. Yeah, I can I can jump to the last conversation I ever had with my father. Um, yeah. And I was living in the church and I had already cut myself off from most of my friends and family. And uh, I was just living in the basement of the church because that was how I could be more submitted to God. At least that's what my leaders were suggesting. Um, I was not supposed to have conversations with my family um, at the direction of my leaders. I was not supposed to be using the church telephone without getting permission. Um, But I was at the front desk doing an overnight security spot. And um, I felt like I should call my dad. Maybe it was a prompting from God. I don't know. Um, But when I called him, I told him that the next thing I was going to do was to move to Indiana and live at one of our churches there because I was still struggling with this homosexuality thing. I was still struggling um, to live right. And I really wanted to give give my all and follow God. And so I I let him know that um, that I'm going to be out of touch for at least 30 days, but it's an indefinite amount of time. And um, he he told me that um, he, I, I've always had parents who gave me a lot of autonomy. So I was always kind of, you know, saying this is what I'm going to do. You know, again, I decided in high school, I picked my high school. Most of my peers did not. Um, but I was telling him, this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be out of touch. But, you know, I love you and I'm, I'm doing this so I can, you know, so I can please God and, 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 and so forth. And my father was, uh, he was always somebody who, again, let me be whoever I was going to be, whether it was that, that was the kid who was doing show, show performances and lip syncing to Patti LaBelle in the living room at, 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 as a child, or whether that was, you know, growing up to be a teacher or what, whatever I wanted to do, he was going to support it. Um, and so he was fine with it. Um, but, you know, little little did I know that when I told him I love you and I'll talk to you when I can, um, that he would pass within the next 48 hours unattended. He lived alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so interesting because that delayed me moving to Indiana um, so we could take care of his arrangements. Um, and I was so caught up in the church environment that I was in that I didn't cry for another two years. Because again, I was in the space where we we have faith. We know what God is doing. We're about the the kingdom business, yeah. and so there's no time for all this other let stuff. The dead bury let the, the dead, right? Let let them mourn their own. Um, and I was busy being pious. I was busy Jeez. becoming what God wanted me to be. Um, and so there was no time for anything else. Just get that get that funeral done and go. And I went. 
Um, and I and I cut off everybody after that. I, I forsook everybody. Um, and the people who would not go away are the people who literally kind of rescued me in in so many ways. Because um, I was I was I was becoming less and less um, mentally healthy um, in that yeah. environment. Um, but I was I was doing it because I thought I was going to send everybody else to hell. If they knew that this minister, if they saw this minister of the gospel was struggling with these kind of sins, um, referring to being gay or, or, or having gay sex or anything like that. Isn't it interesting how we always have to be the ones that are at fault and we have to like mm-hmm. work to appease others like it's it's all it's almost like a burden that's placed on us or or maybe not necessarily placed on us but we pick up and carry right yeah and it, it typically at least in my experience is always around protecting others right mm-hmm. like i need to punish myself in order to help these people save these people care for these people whatever yeah. And it, it comes from that non-dominant identity status. We often see women, um, we've seen studies where women say thank you even when they didn't necessarily need something from somebody because we've been kind of conditioned in our society that women need to be gra- grateful for stuff. Um, and in, the, in a similar way, um, black people are you know, we, we, we've talked about how black people have the talk about how to survive an encounter with the police. When you're very young, we're taught how to be less um, threatening to people, how to how to change our speech so it's more acceptable and comforting to white people. Like there's all these ways that we are socialized to take responsibility for everyone else, for what are their fears, for what are their shortcomings. Um, and so I think in the same way for, for gender and sexual minorities, we inherit and we even perpetuate some of these things right like i i remember telling other other people well that's too gay or don't call me girl or you know all these things that came as social 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 things it was like no we must police ourselves and be as close to heterosexual looking and passing as possible oh god help us so the the time in that church basement, like, was that part of the reparative therapy or was that like that to me sounds like the cult or that that was the reparative yes, therapy it, is the cult? Yes. Yes. And <laughs> right. OK. Um, the church, the church at the time, I wouldn't have said it this way, but uh, the church was very cult like is the way I used to describe it. But yeah, if you go through the checklist of of um, communities that that have cult behavior my church yeah. had many of those um but the but yes moving to indiana was specifically so that i could um in their mind i could get away from the gay <laughs> because they didn't think there were gay people in indiana i surprised them <laughs> Aww, i'm so glad you <laughs> Cause did because i found some yeah <laughs> um they didn't think there were gay people in indiana so they were surprised when i found gay people in indiana um they also it was also this this demand that I demonstrate that I really wanted to have God, that I really wanted to sur- to to surrender, and that I really was trusting my leadership. Because again, all this ties to being obedient to your leader, yeah. um, because that's how you get pleasing to God. So yeah, all so of so that's it. the only way you get out, or that's the only way they would like fix you, basically in quotes, is by doing all the checklist of what the leader says. 
Yeah. And there was, there was, there was, for them, there was some history because many of the church leaders had been um, drug addicted when they first got connected to our church. And they, you know, did the same kind of thing where they lived in the pastor's basement and submitted to his leadership and eventually just kind of went cold turkey. And that became the, the, the method and the means for everyone dealing with anything to quote unquote get better. They're not treating it like a therapy like when in my mind what therapy is is dealing with an issue so they were they were dealing dealing with it more like an addiction like yeah kind of programming it's deep programming it's like deep right it's they've got to re re completely reframe your perspective identity and perspective to the world my brain doesn't understand that like i fully don't i i I don't think my parents are not gay affirming at all, but like, I mm-hmm. don't understand why people want to change other people so much that they would create this deprogramming, reprogramming, cult-like thing to basically shame yeah. to shame you into saying that you're not who you are is not good enough. Like, I, I think to them they think they're doing you. people that are gay a favor. I think yes. that they're they, do. they think that they're doing the right thing. Even and, if it hurts, yeah, they do. Right, because of what the Bible says, and you know, correct. It's their faith that's teaching it. It's driving it. They have to be able to justify and explain certain parts of the Bible in order to keep their faith secure and strong. And so they have to have an alternative and solution to when people come to you and say, I think I'm gay. They yeah. have to be able to point you somewhere or else their faith would shatter. So yeah. What did that do to your uh, faith then, Darren? It, being in Indiana and being sold out to God, being it's completely submissive to this Christian pastor. Like what is, what is that doing to your faith as you're still, you know, finding hookups and still clearly not being healed from your gayness? It, it, it intersects in a couple ways and, and I don't want to lose this point, but um, there is a compassion. Like Seth just described this, this need to, to respond and to have an answer and so forth. And part of that drive to, to fix people, to control behavior is because the system that's oppressing minorities is the same system that is oppressing oppressors, right? Like what happens is everyone has to conform to this system, to these ideals in order for the system to work. And so for people who fit in easily to the system, whether that's by virtue of being born white or male or cisgender, you also are doing things like when you say man up as a part of how you play basketball, that it's it's reminding you that being not man man not not being masculine is less than and so we encourage quote unquote each other to do the right thing to toughen up or to not show emotion or whatever it is but it it's keeping all of us in line and so when someone falls way outside of that you have to you're concerned you're you're afraid for them cuz what what happens if you don't fit in what it, what does life look like and so i you know, I, my pastor is responsible for the for the things that he did and he said, but I also know that that some of it comes from the ways that that we as a society are conditioned to 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 keep everyone in line. It it's it, how we control people makes us feel okay with the world that the world will continue on. Yeah, um, I'm really glad you said that, Darren. I'm really glad you took the time to respond to that yeah. because um, that was 
kind of the follow-up because I wanted to hear what it did with your faith because it seems like, and now that you clarified, that you didn't have any bitterness or animosity as you're telling this story. It's more of like recalling of like what happened, like where you almost have a forgiveness or understanding or compassion from where they were at. They were technically abusing you. And these yes. were your abusers. Definitely was abuse. But you're able to somehow see it through their eyes or through their lenses and step outside yourself, which is admirable. I'm not, I mean, like, I don't want to forgive their actions at all, but, but you are correct. They're doing what they believe is love from, from their Bible. Yeah. It just, it's, it's still more of the perpetuation of us burdening ourselves to protect others. Like, yeah. it, it, it it's it's a continual thing that it's not like you we have and i know this i'm not objecting in any way i'm just continuing here pointing out something because we're continually going through this this is not something that for gay people it's like we do once right. it's like we're con- it, this is like a lifelong mm-hmm. thing it's it's a lifelong commitment to self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. which then brings in the whole Jesus allegory, right? Mm-hmm. Of bow down, lay your stuff down, and pick up your cross. You know, and, mm-hmm. and that's where it gets really dangerous for mm-hmm. gay people in Christianity because literally it's manufactured shame and guilt. And yeah. I just when I heard you say that, I was like, well, here we go again. You know? Because yeah. we at some point we've got to stay, we've got to stand up. Yeah. And that's, that's the, you know, to talk about what it did to my faith that there's a, there's a beautiful both and there. Um, when I was being told that I needed to go to Indiana, I knew they were wrong. I, I, I understood that this is not what was going to change my sexuality, but I was one so desperate for change that I was willing to try something else. And these were the, the, the spiritual authorities in my life who I was entrusting as a young 18 year old, I was entrusting them. Um, but also there was the part where um, we want, we want to like protect everyone. We want to, you know, do the quote unquote, do the right thing. Um, but that, you know, Seth so beautifully talked about that allegory. I saw myself and still would say I see myself the way Jesus was. Jesus was put to death by his church leaders who thought they were mm-hmm. doing the will of God concerning his life. They killed him, set him up to be to be killed, tortured to death um, because they thought this is what God wanted. Um, I still don't necessarily think that that's what God wanted, but God redeems all kinds of things. And so what my feeling was going into this was like, this is horrible. I'm, I'm giving up my life. I'm doing all this stuff. But if you can raise Jesus in three days, then you can also raise me from this situation. Yeah. And then when it doesn't happen and it doesn't work, guess who didn't have enough faith? Me! It's not God that <laughs> failed. It's you that failed. Right. You didn't try hard enough, Darren. Right. But how do you how and did you get out of that how did you get out of that cycle? How did you get out of that cult? So the so a few quick and beautiful things happened. One, um, me having that perception of you know, following Jesus even into to death and burial was an opportunity for me to realize, um, like, 
no, even though they're telling me I don't have enough faith, even though they're telling me that God doesn't love me, the same way God showed for me, showed up for me in that hookup, the same way God showed up for me in actually every hookup after that, the same way that, that God was showing up for me in the basement of this church, the same way that God was showing up for me, even when my highest authority of church leader was telling me one thing, God was telling me another thing. It was like, no, my relationship with God has always transcended and pre-existed the church as an institution, and that's not about to change now. And so, as I went into this uh, into this deeper level of sacrifice and commitment and so forth, I did have some bad theology that came with it, but also got to like connect with God in ways that I'd never done before. I was living in Indiana. I felt like I disappointed everyone. I felt like I was of no use to God, and God was like, even if you had lost all capacity, because I was a dancer too, right? Even if you'd lost all capacity and the only thing you had the ability to do was, was to blink your eyes. God was saying to me, I still want that blink. And so what I was hearing was like, it's not about all the things I can do. And I'm an Enneagram too, so that shades some of this. Like Enneagrams like to be helpers. We feel loved when we're able to be helpful to others. And I felt like I was completely unable to be helpful to anyone. But God was like, no, I love you simply for who you are. You've, I've loved you through all this other stuff that you thought was a complete and utter failure. I've loved you in all these other situations. Why would I not love you now? And so it was that kind of underlying theme that kept challenging what was going on as things got worse and worse and worse as my pastor threatened that the, that the devil just wanted me to go to heaven with aids which you know is so problematic on so many levels as all of that happened god was just reminding me that i am loved reminding me that i have purpose reminding me that there's something more to my life the story of my whole life i was born premature the doctor said i wasn't going to make it i was going to be a vegetable if i did Again, just these constant reminders that my life is more significant than what people see and say. Um, and so it was that same faith that I had to go back to because I didn't even have a church at that point. But that's when I was like, you know what? Abraham didn't have a church either. He didn't have a Bible to go by. He didn't have all these other things that we, you know, that we rely on in the modern church to, to let us know when we're doing right. He just had his faith and this miraculous appearance from God that no one else saw. And he was able to follow that and his faith was rewarded. And so in the same way, I felt like I was following, following God in ways that just did not fit anything that was going on around me. And while, again, I don't blame God for, for what happened. I, I think humans have a lot of creative capacity. We're created in the image of the creator. Um, but I think God like redeems so much of the crap that happens in our lives. Um, and that Again, it's not because God's just like sitting there wanting to watch watch a really bad season of reality TV. <laughs> it's more like, yeah, this is this sucks. This is this is messed up, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to work it out. I'm committed to you. I'm committed to this. I'm not going to take away your free will. I'm not going to take away their free will, but I'm going to work this out. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what I that's what I feel happened. The other important thing was that I had friends. Like I said, some people did not leave when I told them to go away. Some people and they didn't try to tell me what to think. They didn't tell me, oh, no, that's a bad place or that's a bad thing. That's you're doing the wrong thing. No, they were just they were committed to relationship with me. And it was a reflection of God's commitment with in relationship to me that eventually let me ask the questions, poke the holes and see, no, I'm going to follow God. And God is not calling me to stay here and be in this. Um, and eventually I left. Did any of your family sh uh, fit into that circle or was it just friends? 
my mom is the my mom is the the ride or die who would not go anywhere um you know again a level of this uh cult situation they were telling her she she had followed me to the church um and she was active in the church as well same church um they were telling her that i was not going to make it and that they that she should forsake me they were telling me that she is not submitted to the will of god and that i should forsake her they were doing you know art of war style uh, division in amongst us Typical and because of who she is she was not going for it she was still a part of the church but she was like no we don't mm -mm. Uh, she's actually the she's where I got my my grassroots activism from uh, <laughs> but yeah it was one of those things where no matter what they told her she was going to do do what she thought was right um, while giving me full autonomy the entire time, but she didn't, you know, she knew something wasn't right, but she wasn't going to just go hook, line and sinker for it. And uh, she was the one who came and picked me up when it was like, okay, it's time for me to leave. I love you. I lived on her couch. Aww. Love her too. She's the best. Wouldn't trade her for anything. <sighs> yeah. It's a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really it is. is. <laughs> I'm like, that I have was... self-care plans after this. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. Good. As you should. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was looking over our little uh, framework that we had, and you hit on most of the questions that we wanted to, to hit on. And um, this has been heavy, and you've been very candid. It's been great, like you said. Uh, there's so many things that we could have camped out on for for a whole hour, and so to try to pack it all in to, to this amount of time, um, you've done great. So thank you very much. I guess that appreciate it. Um, I mean. Obviously, would want to know more about your time in Indiana, but let's go ahead. So clearly, it worked, and now you have a wife and three point four kids, <laughs> and you know all that stuff, and, right? I mean, that's like, should that's, I call my wife in to, <laughs> right. to you can meet her? I mean, because right. reparative therapy wor works, right? It worked, and the and the rainbow flag that's behind me is just for decoration. <laughs> <laughs> To remind you, God didn't take us all out after the flood. <laughs> right, no, you've been you've been very candid totally in your stories, it. and um, it sounds like you've you've come a long ways to be able to talk openly about about this in such a lighthearted manner. And um, but at the end of the day, for people like myself um, who haven't experienced anything like that, and you know, Seth being one of my best friends, it breaks my heart. Uh, it really does that. Um, like Seth keeps bringing it up, you know that that you put yourself through this because a lot mm -hmm. of times it's not I, I, I'm angry at the institution that that would treat any human being that way but it breaks my heart that you guys are relating on a level of like yeah shame is is my identity and so and because of that it made sense that I would lower myself more than anybody else and and how how do you cope now what is you you mentioned that you have some self-care things that you're that you plan on doing after kind of rehashing some of this stuff um but anybody listening who may have shared some of your experiences um how do you now um able to like look at you how do you look at yourself now how do you yeah. accept yourself and um, do you still deal with eternal homophobia? 
Yeah, um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll make sure to to, to plug one of my favorite orgs um, in the event that someone is needing support um, around this. Uh, the Trevor Project uh, specifically works with LGBTQ youth. Um, if you're considering harming yourself or suicide, uh, they are there for you 24 hours a day. I don't have the number handy, but we can drop that in the show notes. Yes. Um, so the Trevor Project is a resource, um, as well as uh, communities like Q Christian Fellowship and the Reformation Project. They're doing the theological work as well as doing the community building work across a broad range of, of theologies. Um, you know, when we talk about my follow up, uh, one of the things that I, I realized in going through all of these things from being in these very oppressive ex-gay kind of spaces um, to going to a church after that that was open to um, open to me as an identifying as a gay man, but still had very strict requirements that weren't fully articulated um, about what it meant for me to be a church leader and a gay man and that, you know, you'd find out about rules and stipulations after you cross them. Um, I spent about two years being denied from being able to stand at the front of a stage and, and lead <laughs> in the church that loved me and wanted to help me, you know, continue to grow. Um, and But that's where I got my voice about um, challenging the church in these issues because as, as much as they didn't have their stuff together, they were always asking me, well, how do we get it together, right? They, they felt the guilt. They felt that, oh, this is not what we intended when we said you can't lead. Like, we, this isn't what we intended when we said this about same-sex marriage. Um, and so that got me to, to speak into very high-level influential people about, hey, when you say you mean this, you need to actually talk to the people that it matters to because otherwise you won't realize what kind of impact you're having. Um, making policies and rules without us in the room, but we have to live with it, means that we see the hypocrisy of a bunch bunch of married straight people with kids telling anyone that they need to spend the rest of their lives single um, and without family because this is what the Bible says. It's like, you don't actually believe that the way that you tell me. <laughs> you believe it because you're crying and I'm not. Like, right? <laughs> so, if you're going to, if, you're, uh, if your theology is that, well, you can be gay, but you need to remain celibate, I'm fine with that if you're willing to put in the same level of commitment that you do for children and families ministry for marriage recovery ministries, all of that stuff gets lots of budget items and full-time staff. But you're asking me to spend the, less, the rest of my life as a, as a part of this community single, but you can't tell me what the end of my life is going to look like, if I, like the way it would happen if I were a nun or a priest? No, 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 no. This cannot be the will of God. And so, I spend time again, in these communities where I'm like, if this is what you believe, let's make this actually honor what's in the in the scripture. Let's make sure that the widows and the orphans are taken care of <laughs> the way the Bible did, not the way that you do where it's not a line item on your budget. Um, we, we need to actually make space for people to come to their own decisions, which is where I, I landed. I was like, I met Jesus loving, completely surrendered to God, people who are same sex married, people who are mixed orientation married, people who are um, celibate and in intentional communities for life, people who have given up the faith altogether that still live in love like Jesus better than most of the church folk. I've met a range. And so no one's going to like give me an answer. I have to have a relationship with my God to figure that out for myself. Um, but 
I'm also equipped and called to to help transform the church on this conversation. And so that's that's energy giving for me, but also something I have to kind of limit. You know, I, I do have to, to have my phone calls after I have this call and, you know, feel the feels and and um, remind myself that I'm OK and and deal with the new things that come up because like I said, I'm 20 years out and I'm still like going, oh, wow, this still hurts. Look at that. You know, um, but also to be reminded that I am I am a victory. I am a success story. I, I am a gay man who's Christian and black and all of y'all can deal with it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like these these things were true back then. They're still true today. And so I am just like God, who's the same today, yesterday and forever. Yes, my labels have changed. My uh, church affiliations have changed. Um, hell, my body has changed. But <laughs> who I am, who God called me to be, who God God made me to be the love that God has poured out on me. All of that is the same, um, and that all of it is really working together for good. I'm going to start preaching because I'm still a little charismatic. Oh, <laughs> <All> good. <laughs> well, I actually have the uh, information for the Trevor Project pulled up real quick. So, oh, if you you know if you are someone who has questions or you're struggling and you you know want someone to talk to, uh, you can text start to six seven eight. Eight six seven eight. You can also call one eight six six four eight eight seven three eight six, or you can go to their website, which is the trevorproject.org and you can chat there with people 24 seven, 365 days a year. So it's a really great resource. Absolutely. I'm going to go cry for about 45 minutes and I'll be back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do the tapping that we learned from Mitch earlier. I've been doing that on my hand. <laughs> we just got done talking with a therapist over in Australia and he, and he was teaching us about tapping because it helped. Oh, yeah. As a, it helps you ground yourself. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, not work, it's not working yet. I'm still crying. It's it's still it's the practice. It, I promise it is. Darren, we need to have you back on at some I'm, point. I'm trying to get back on. I love this. Yay! <laughs> you uh, yeah. you kind of fall in line with our vibe. <laughs> what chaotic good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. I'm really excited to have met you. Um, I Same. we definitely want you back on. This has been great, everyone. It really is. 